0: Welcome to Midlife Mastery and I'm Brock Edwards and if you are over 50 looking for ideas, information, inspiration on living an amazing second half of your life, this is the show for you. Today's guest is Merle Saferstein and she spent much of her career helping Holocaust survivors share their life stories and from that experience she began writing, speaking, teaching to help others live their legacy and I really love thinking about legacy and Uh, Maybe that's just stage of life. I don't know. But in this episode, we discuss those pivotal moments that change our lives, you know, those moments that maybe didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but end up really altering the course of of our life. And we talk about aligning your life behind how you want to be remembered and even creating an ethical will. Now, however, what stands out most for me is the idea that legacy is not what we leave behind, but it's how we live how we're remembered tomorrow is really based on how we approach our life today. And there's some great lessons in this episode. I'm excited to share it with you. So I'm going to stop talking and let's get this interview started. Today's guest is Merle Saferstein. And Merle, all right, so you've kind of had a fantastic life. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself here, so I don't miss anything, but can you just quickly tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you're up to?
1: Sure. First of all, I want to thank you for having me on your, your podcast. I am by profession an educator. I have taught all grades, from starting from preschool, all through I went through and was an administrator in a high school. I became a Holocaust educator in 1986 and did that for 26 years. And when I left my, that, my job at the Holocaust Center, I then developed a course called Living and Living Your Legacy. So I have been teaching and speaking and writing about legacy ever since then. And so that's where I'm at. I'm also an ardent journal writer. I've kept journals since 1974. And now I have a collection of 380 journals.
0: Ah, That's amazing. And you've got a, you're an author too, right? You've got a a book coming out.
1: I have a book coming out and I wrote a book in in 2012 also.
0: All right. So we'll get into those a a little bit, but I'm curious. So you mentioned legacy and I've been having conversations lately with friends and with guests on the show, and there seems to be a consistent theme that about midlife, people often realize they've lost themselves a little bit. Either they didn't end up where they thought they were going to end up, or just somewhere along the way, they got so busy with kids, career, house in the suburbs, minivan, whatever, that they they really... St- forgot to start, (laughs) forgot to keep up with who they are, what their dreams were and all of that. Then they hit this point. I don't know, kids leave the house, something big happens. And they're just kind of confronted with not knowing who they are and trying to figure that out. And in my mind, I connect that back to kind of this idea of legacy and I can see some connection to journaling. And anyway, what was that your experience or you've spoken with a lot of people? Do you come across that a lot?
1: So it was, that wasn't necessarily my experience. My experience happened a little before age 50. So at age 38, I ended up, I was in a job that was really painful because of the administrator who, was, who had become a very dishonest person. And I left my job. I quit in the middle of the school year, which is something that was really kind of unheard of. And I was also very concerned about what message I was giving to my children like this is not okay to quit. But what I learned quickly thereafter is that what we need to do, at least what I need to do, is follow my dreams and also do something that speaks to my soul. And if if I'm not doing that, then then things are not right in my world. And so for two and a half years, I kind of wandered the beach. I live in South Florida, trying to figure out what I was doing. I wrote a novel, nothing happened with it, but I accomplished the novel, it was supposed to be made into a movie, it didn't happen, but that's okay, too. And, and then just by meeting a stranger on the beach, my whole life changed because he offered me something that spoke to my soul. So I think you know, when you ask that question, I think that it's different for everybody. But I think that that the issue becomes, what what am I doing that's meaningful in my life? And if, in fact, we don't have those answers, then we need to go searching. And so I think maybe that's what happens to some people at around it, in midlife. And I can honestly say I had a midlife crisis that was just a little earlier than 40.
0: So a stranger on the beach... That offered something that changed your life. So you can't leave it, leave it there. We need a little more description. Like, like
1: okay, I'll tell
0: what, you. <laughs> what, it sounds like such a pivotal moment that was. I don't know. I think about in my own life, there are these things. The pivotal moments are not what I thought they would be. Like looking back, I can connect the dots, but in they happen, they were just it felt almost random happenstance, chance. And, and, and anyway, so I'm fascinated by that. So I would love to hear how, you know, taking a walk on the beach, meeting a stranger ends up changing kind of course of your life.
1: Okay. So I first want to say something about pivotal moments. In my legacy classes, one of the exercises we do is to list 10 pivotal moments in our life. And then to talk about what was happening before that, and what was happening, and what happened after as a result of that moment? How did life change? So pivotal moments are really important, and you're right—they're not necessarily the ones. It's not necessarily my high school graduation, getting married, having a child. Very often, it's very different from that. So for me, I was in this state of trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and I live—I live in South Florida, and I live fairly close to the beach and the ocean someplace that I love to be. So I was spending a lot of time there, and I would go to the beach and I would write, I would jog every morning across along the shore. And at the same time, I was doing that there was a man close to my age who was doing the same thing, we would pass each other wave as we jog, you know, by each other. And then I'd look down, just maybe 50 feet away, and there he was sitting with his books and his pen and paper doing exactly the same thing I was doing, both of us writing with fountain pens. And so at some point, after about three or four weeks, we started talking. So the man was Tom Osborne. He left the priesthood. He he had a really interesting experience. He was a, an on-air reporter in South Dakota. He also did speech writing for George McGovern and for Robert Kennedy. And when the Kennedys and Martin Luther King got shot, he was devastated, and he went into the priesthood. So when I met Tom, he had just left the priesthood after eight years. And he was basically lost like I was and he was working on a documentary on the moral majority at Pat Robeson and all of them. And then he left South Florida. So he was here for a month. And we became fast friends because we were both at the beach every day. We would get into these really heavy conversations. This was during the time that I was really in search of myself. And Tom was very spiritual. And I did not have anyone else in in my life at that point who could really talk about those otherworldly things. And so Tom, I'll never forget. He said to me, you know, you are embarking on a path and there's no turning back. And he was talking about individuation and self actualization. And he was, he'd studied Carl Jung and he was all into all of that. And he said, Are you sure you're ready for this? And so it became really um, quite the conversation, which we call a seminar, seminar by the sea. And we very often have talked about writing our story, which someday after these two books are done, I will do. So Tom left, went to Washington, D.C. for a while, then went to New York, and he ended up being the executive director of the Anne Frank Center in New York. Around the same time, someone had found the Anne Frank photograph album, the family photograph album in the Chester drawers in Germany, and sent it to the Anne Frank Center in, in Amsterdam. And they created an exhibition called Anne Frank and the World, 1929 to 1945. And this exhibit was her family photos surrounded by the Holocaust. So it was 800 photos and it was really the story of the Holocaust, but kind of told through Anne's eyes and what else was going on in the world. And Tom's job was to take this exhibit and send it around the country. So here I had quit working. I was really, I kept getting these job interviews, every one of them. I, they, you know, they were coming to me and I was saying, this isn't happening. I would sit in the office during the interview and think that I will won't, won't have claustrophobia if I work here. This is not speaking to my soul. So Tom called me one day in May of 85 and said to me, so I'm going to offer you something. It's a volunteer job, but you might be interested. And he said, how would you like to be the first city to bring the Anne Frank exhibit? And you can make it as big as you want. So I spoke to my husband, who at that point was like, "Enough already! You need to get a job." And and he he had been so kind, really, and let me do what I needed to do. But he said, "Of course, you have to," because he knew he knew what journaling meant to me. He knew that Anne Frank was someone who really reading her diary at a young age changed my life, had a huge impact. And so I ended up bringing the exhibit to Miami. It was here for six weeks. We had over 60,000 people who saw the exhibit in the six weeks. And I did a tremendous amount of educational programming with students as well as with adults. And I did a lot of just speaking to adult groups. So one of the programs I did was with two students from every high school in Dade County. So there were about a hundred students and then also a group of 25 students who were from another school where they had just put on the play the day of Anne Frank and I had actually met a Holocaust survivor who was in hiding down the street from the Frank family and I had him come and talk to the cast of this play and I let them talk out of their character So, for example, Peter would say, you know, we're having trouble. There's a lot of fighting going on. What happened in your house? And it was an amazing conversation. And so I invited these these, the cast and the crew from that as well and did a journaling session with them. I talked about the Holocaust and I brought these two women from the Holocaust Documentation Education Center to come to speak to them about what they do. And when the women saw that, they they then later asked me to come and volunteer. But the other thing that I did with with the students at this particular symposium is after lunch, I had Peter stand up and no one knew. They only had first names, so they had no idea what schools anyone was from. They had no idea. Peter stood up and started speaking, giving a line of the play and then one by one, the actors in the play. Did an act, and it was really mind boggling. And then we went down and saw the exhibit. So I was then called as a volunteer to ask if I would be interested in helping them develop educational programming for students. They were doing some for adults, but not for students. And so that's how it began. And that began my career. And then their secretary quit and they said, will you be the secretary? And I said, I will for three months. But if I'm not in education after that, I'm out of here because I really, I knew, I mean, I didn't want to be the secretary. I wanted to do something with students. And so the rest is history.
0: That's amazing. I I love those, you know, chance encounter leading to chance encounter leading to chance encounter kind of. And then leading to a full long stand on its own career. I mean, you mentioned 26 years doing that out of because you were jogging on a beach and doing some writing. So often we try to. plan our lives, figure all this out. And, and I think that's important to have a direction and know where we want to go. And yet the most significant moments often come when we just least expect them. And so great, great example of that. And what you had mentioned legacy, and I, I really want to talk about legacy as well. You know, when we're younger, I think we tend to think about purpose. And then at some point it feels like that shifts and we start thinking about legacy. So, so I'm kind of curious for, I mean, for you, what is legacy? And I know you mentioned you, you do a whole class on it, but you've also just, I know you said, you know, basically how you live your life becomes your legacy. So, I mean, let's talk about that.
1: Okay. So my job at the Holocaust center was working with approximately 500 Holocaust survivors and my responsibility was to help them pass along their legacy of remembrance to students so that we could learn the dangers of prejudice and so we did these educational programs called student awareness days where we had holocaust survivors sitting with students having the opportunity to talk to them and the survivors would start by saying you know i was your age when the Holocaust happened, I had the same hopes and dreams, and then my whole life got taken, you know, changed. So legacy was something that we talked about all the time at the Holocaust Center and the survivors, regardless of what they did after the Holocaust, when they talk legacy, they always talk Holocaust, they don't talk about, you know, the fact that they created huge businesses had had life experiences, it was always the Holocaust, because to them that was what was so important to remember. So when I left the Holocaust Center, I knew that I wanted to teach, but I didn't know what I wanted to teach. And in my journal, one day I was writing and the word legacy came down. And I thought to myself, you know, I wonder if there's anything in that I wonder if, if people would be interested in talking about thinking about their legacies. And really, I had not thought that much about it myself. And so I started like doing some research and thinking about what would it mean to teach a class in Legacy. And I named the class Living and Leaving Your Legacy because I felt that it's really two parts. And I quickly came to realize after teaching a few classes that really Legacy is much more about how we're living our life than what we leave behind because people watch us. And we, we learn not by what we say, but by what we do. You know, people, you can say a lot, but it's, you know, our kids, our families, people are watching us. And so I then started to look at the different kinds of legacy. There's legacy between teacher and student, nurse and doctor. There's legacy between, in families, there's professional legacy, there's legacy on complete strangers. And so I, the more research I did and the more talking to people, I realized that originally I sent my classes, four, four classes on living your legacy and four on leaving. And it sh- quickly shifted to six and two because I really wanted people to understand that it's all about what they're doing today, what they're living today, and to, and to know that that's going to be their legacy. And so that's how this all began. And then when I started thinking about my journals, I, I really questioned A, what to do with them and whether my journals were my written legacy to my children. But I, but I, I really agonized because I wrote my journals for my eyes only and I did not understand how I could leave them to them. Also, people had you know, told me their secrets and in processing some of the confidences that I heard, I wrote about other people. I certainly don't want my children to see that. So at some point, I decided that maybe I needed to go through my journals and find those things that I think worthy of sharing and not leave my journals. And so that's how the book, My Living and Leaving My Legacy, began by starting to go back and think about what my legacy will be, at least my written legacy. And so that's how I started. I don't know if I answered your question. I went all over the place. but
0: So you you said something fascinating, that legacy is how we live, not what we leave behind. Tell me more about that.
1: Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. At least I think perfect. I do a writing group with women who have been impacted with cancer. I've been doing that since I retired. And it's just something that I volunteer and do because I I just think it's so important for people to be able to write for wellness. And there was a woman in the group named Marie, and Marie was dying of, started with breast cancer, but it metastasized to her lung and to her brain. And toward the very end, when she was in hospice, I brought four four of the women and I went to visit her. And Marie was someone, she was not religious, she was actually an atheist, did not believe in. Anything, and especially did not believe that there was anything after we die. You know, to her, you die, and that's it, which fascinated me. So we were talking, and I knew Marie was very open. She, above all the people, and I've done a lot of hospice volunteering for many, many years, of all the people whose bedsides I'd sat at as they're dying, Marie was the most open in talking about death, even though she felt death was final, and that was it. So, I, I kind of led the way and started asking questions so that all of us had this conversation. It was a three hour conversation. Usually, when you're visiting someone who's dying in hospice, you don't spend three hours, but we were all really connected. And so, I asked her the question I said to Marie, How, how do you want us to remember you? And she thought for a minute, she looked at me and she said, No, it doesn't matter how I want you to remember me. You're going to remember me the way you remember me. And I had always asked that question in class. I had always said, how do you want to be remembered thinking that that was important, but, but how we want to be remembered has to be how we're living our life because it doesn't matter how I want you to remember me. If I haven't done what it is that I'd like you to remember me for, I will not be remembered that way.
0: Well, that makes sense. And I, and I know that's kind of a, a personal thing. I mean, we all want to be remembered for different things. And, and so we all need to align our lives behind that. But I mean, this is something you, you've been teaching. So how do you help people align their lives behind how they want to be remembered by others?
1: So, so one way is to have people look at, at their life lessons. What is it that, that you have learned in your life? that is worthy of passing along? And and are you living your life according to the lessons that you've learned? Another is values and beliefs, and another is hopes and dreams. And so one of the things I encourage people to do is write an ethical will. So an ethical will is really, it's like a spiritual document where, where you can either write to an individual or to a family, or to collective loved ones, depending on what it is that you choose. And basically, you share those things that you want people to know about you and remember and learn for themselves. One of the things I do in class is have people write as many life lessons as they can in X number of minutes. And then we go around the room and we share those life lessons. And it's inevitable that everyone is saying, oh, yes, of course. And they're writing it down as part of theirs as well. And then we talk values and beliefs. And I have a worksheet that I do with about 100 words that just kind of spark. It's I call it words to inspire, but it's words that inspire people to think about different phases of their life, their character, their values, their beliefs, and then hopes and dreams that you want people to live by. And so in doing that, it helps people, I think, to frame what it is, that's really important, and to look at their own lives and saying, Am I living this way? And so and actually, no matter what we talk about in our classes, I always turn it back to, well, this is legacy because it's, it's important to you. It's what you're talking about. It has meaning in your life today, and so it will become part of your legacy if, in fact, it's really, if it's in fact, it's really that important to you.
0: I really appreciate the intentionality of it. And you know, one of the things I think about because I, I mentioned that it feels like so often we get to midlife just a little bit lost kind of forgetting who we were, who we are, who we want to be, you know, when we're young, we're thinking about that all the time. What are we going to do as a career? How do we want to live? I mean, our whole life is potential hopes and dreams. We haven't done anything yet. We don't have enough experience in anything yet. So that's all we're thinking about. But then we kind of get to the, this midpoint. And like I say, it's easy just to set aside and forget because you're living life, you're dealing with kids, career, Everything And and so I'd love the moment to to pause and think about what are my values? (laughs) Like what, what, what do I really want? Are there common themes that come out as people are doing this? I know it's, you know, I imagine it's individual for everyone, but do you see and hear themes?
1: Probably, but I, I can't tell you that I could really name them. I mean, education is something that's, you know, really important to people. Even the Holocaust survivors, they used to say to me, you know, They took away, they could take away everything from us, but they couldn't take away our education. So education is one of the things that's important. Family values, caring about family, you know, people across the board always say that. I always ask a question, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment? And I am amazed at how many people, and this is very personal, and I'm not judging, but how many people say my children are my greatest accomplishment? not something i mean we you know we give birth to our children we raise them but they're not even looking at their own lives it's 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 beyond that and so i think that's really interesting too other things you know career w- the impact we've made in our careers people talk about that i don't know i, I i'm kind of lost on that one today
0: no that that's okay that's okay i say it it's individual to people i one of the things i find is, as I talk to people, is there's so much that we think is only us, and it turns out that right. it's not quite as unique as we think it is. Like... Right.
1: Right. You know, when we talk about legacy, in volume two, which will come out next year, I do a whole piece on, you know, how, how my legacy class developed. But then at the end of the book, I have a whole list of things, legacy projects we can do. Mm -hmm. Legacy projects we can do for ourselves and legacy projects we can do with children because I do a lot of work with children who have lost loved ones and help them to do legacy projects around the person that they've lost. And then I also have how to write an ethical will. So these are things that, that I'm willing to share. And if anyone wanted to contact me, certainly they could, and I'd be happy to share if this inspires anyone to do this work.
0: Yeah. Well, I i mean, what can you, I, you already told us a little bit about the ethical will, but I am still a little unfamiliar with it. I've never heard that before. And so if someone did want to get started on that, how, how do they approach that?
1: Yeah. So let me just tell you the background under the ethical wills begins way back in biblical times when Jacob gathered his sons together and told him, where he wanted to be buried and gave them instruction in some way. So it, it originally was a, a Jewish thing that has since evolved and become something that's, you know, of course, cross-culture. How to begin an ethical will. I mean, I, I've mentioned that it's, an ethical will contains our life lessons, our values and beliefs and hopes and dreams. So I would begin by listing those things. And then sharing them. So it's interesting because people people say, you know, is this something that that you give to people while you're living, or do you do you share it after you know, want to share it after you die? So there was a man in my class who decided that he was writing it for his four children, and he was determined to share it with them now. And I said to him, I think that's great, but I'm gonna just warn you. That if someone gets this while you're still living, they're thinking, "Oh my God, is he going to die? Is everything okay? Why is he giving this to me now?" And and so I kind of predicted how, and I know him well, how his children would react. And one of them basically said nothing. One said, "Thank you." One said, "Dad, I'm really not ready for this." And one had a conversation about the things he wrote. Um, I. I've helped people on their deathbed write their ethical wills. And one of the most profound experiences I had was when the fam when the woman who was dying asked me if I would read her ethical will at her funeral. And it was really, it was hard. It was really hard to do because there I was speaking her words. And the rabbi said to me, I want to do this last because I want her words. I want Lisa's words to live on in her family. And so there I was reading which she had written for her family and friends to them. It was very, but the ethical will is something that I think, and I think this is really important. I think it's, it's while it's important to leave and as a gift to those we leave behind, the greatest gift is really the gift we give ourselves by doing this. And that's how I feel about legacy work. You know, we, we think we're doing it for other people, but to be able to go back and reflect on our lives and look at, what's important to us. It kind of just frames our whole being. It's such a gift. It's a huge gift, as is journaling, by the way. I think that the greatest gift I've given myself is my journals for a lot of reasons.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a little bit, because you'd mentioned 380, like I'm envisioning yeah. most of a room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll
1: tell you where they are. So, So originally, I kept them in a safe deposit box when I just had a few at the beach. I used to go to the beach and about once a month I'd bring my journal and the people at the bank would look at me like, okay, so there's no money, there's no diamond and jewels, but she keeps putting these books in here. And the reason I did it was not, not for privacy because my family really respects my privacy, but we had a fire when we were first married and I even though I had no idea what these journals were gonna to mean to me, I just knew I didn't want them ever burned. So, so I kept them in a, safe, in a safe deposit box. When I used two, was filled two safety deposit boxes and it was costing me a lot of money and the bank said the biggest size next is a vault and that's gonna cost a lot of money. I went looking for something to keep them in. So I bought a 700 pound fireproof safe. It's five drawers. My daughter had moved to Atlanta. I called her and I said, are you sure you're not coming home? Because it's going to take up half your closet, which it does. And so that's where I keep my journals. And and I'm really glad that I do because they're safe there. And they're nice. It's nice to have them at home.
0: For, I mean, you mentioned this was the best gift you gave yourself. So, I mean, this is kind of a two-part question. One is why do you say that, and the, then the, of course the follow-up is what's the best way to journal if someone wanted to get started or wanted to refine their journaling? How would they approach that? But first, you know, for, how, why has this been so important to you?
1: Okay, so so journal writing for one has really helped me stay in the moment. It has. In times where I've struggled with a situation, it has been the place that I can go and work through difficult times. It is a place where, you know, early on, I I think I did more recording. You know, like this is what I did today. I ran this many miles. I weighed this much. I, you know, did this. I did that. That really changed when I started going through and reading my journals 20 years ago. I realized that there's a lot that I didn't need. So now I write. I write the things that really, you know, I just let my pen flow and write. Some people need to write with journal prompts. And, and there are all kinds, and I have a ton of them that I'm happy to share with people. I like a blank page. I love to sit down with a, a blank page and just let my pen roll. So for me, it's a catharsis someone asked me the question about how how much negative and how much positive and whatever. And what I realized is that if I've got negatives in my life, I, I work through them to the point that I can come to the other side and find a positive. So I'm living my life in a much more positive way, I think, than I would otherwise. It's a conversation where sometimes, you know, someone might not even ever understand what you have to say but to be able to put it down just to get it out is so to me has been so significant and also i mean it's an amazing record i have a record of my life that probably very few people have and i think when people read my book they might say i wish i had that and one of the things that i i heard recently that i think is a perfect segue to this is, someone asked a wise Chinese man, when is the right time to plant a tree? He said 25 years ago. And then the man said, when's the next best time? And they said now, and the man said now. And that's how I feel about journaling. You know, when people say, oh, I only wish I had, and I say, start now, because it's never too late.
0: I think we fall for that trap a lot, actually. Thinking, I, in fact, I remember doing that. I remember I, I was attending a friend's graduation. And, you know, so the administrator that was speaking, I, I think they're almost obligated to talk about goals, which he did. And, you know, the benefit of having goals and, and all of that. And I was thinking, wow, that was amazing. I sure wish I had started with goals. And it didn't like occur to me to even start them then it was like, well, my life's over now. I'm I'm like 20 years, 20 years old, but yeah.
1: I want to say another thing about journaling that also is amazing has been amazing for me is when, when I first write something down, like when I first wrote the word legacy down in my journal and then I watch, so I plant that seed and then can watch it grow. It's fascinating to just see the process and, and record it without even realizing I'm doing it. And then all of a sudden the flower is growing.
0: Reminds me of a, a Robert Louis Stevenson quote, and I will get it slightly wrong here, but it's just, you know, don't focus on, on the day's harvest, but focus on the number of seeds that you plant. And he said it much more eloquently than that, but it is a different way of thinking about it. Just what, what can I put out there and see how it grows versus obsessing over what's happening right now today. Right.
1: And the tree we plant today is, is our great grandchild's shade.
0: Right. Yeah. That's a nice way of thinking about legacy too. So we've talked a little bit about just living your best life, thinking about what you want to look like, thinking about putting the actions into place so that people will remember you the way you would hope they would remember you and remember you for the things that you've done. And what are those things that you need to do a little bit about the, the power of journaling and the importance of it. What thoughts do you have that would be really impactful for, for the audience?
1: Well, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think is so important is how we are with strangers. So this is this is a really for me has been a huge life lesson. So I'll just give you two examples. Years ago, a very dear friend of mine Jules had ALS and he lived in Washington DC and I went to visit him. This was probably well over 25 years ago, before hospice organizations were really, were really prominent. And I walked in, it was in the middle of the day, and there was a man sitting there And he was visiting with Jules. He was basically a stranger. He was a hospice volunteer. And he would come to Jules' home every week and sit and talk to him for two hours. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can't even imagine what that would be like to go into a stranger's home, to spend your time giving of yourself to a complete stranger. So fast forward about, it's probably 20 Two years ago now, something happened in my life. My my niece and nephew lived here, had a baby, and we just were so happy because our kids weren't here and we had this wonderful family to love and be with. They moved away because of work and I was devastated. And I, I kept saying to myself, I need to do something to fill this void. So I looked in the paper for volunteer opportunities and I saw that there was a training for hospice volunteers. And I went to this training, and I became a hospice volunteer. And for years and years, I went and visited homes, hospice patients, and sat and talked to them. And I ended up training, doing, and I still do, hospice training of legacy work for hospice social workers, volunteers. And when I started teaching this class, and I started going through the different categories of legacy, I said to myself, oh, my God. It was that man who I learned later from, his, from my friend's wife named Henry, who really made the impression on me. I mean, he impacted my life without ever knowing it. So we don't know when we wave to someone, when we give someone a compliment, when we stop and talk to someone, when we look at a homeless person in the eyes, we don't know the impact we're making on that person's life. And so I think that's really important. Another one of my friends, another story is a friend of mine lived half the year here and half the year in North Carolina. And the grocery store she went to was a small store. And she always went to the same cashier. And she said, every time she went to this woman, this woman never looked up. She said, I never saw her face really, because she always looked down. And so my friend Linda said, this time, I'm not going to let her get away with it. So when she went to pay her, she held on to her money. And the cashier started tugging at it. And Linda was determined, and she would not let go of the money until this woman looked up. And when she looked up, Linda said to her, Oh, my God, look at your eyes, you've got the most beautiful green eyes, at which point this woman broke into a huge smile. And Linda said, and look at your smile, you've deprived us of this. All Every, for all of us, for all the time that we come into the store. She said, I don't ever want to walk in here again when I don't see you looking up. Linda said the woman was like a different person from that day on when she came into the store. So it was just just the sh- smallest little thing that she said that really changed how this woman interacted with other people. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a message that I really want to impart is that we don't know, we just don't know the impact. Years ago, I taught third grade when I first started teaching in the early in the mid-60s, about seven or eight years ago, I got a message from someone on Facebook saying, You must be the Merle Rothenberg Saferstein who taught me third grade in 1969, because I can't imagine anyone else having that name. At which point she we started corresponding. She told me that her love of reading came from the fact that I used to take her outside and sit under the tree, sit the class under the tree and read to them. And she said, that's how I developed my love of reading. She then came to Florida. We took a picture together. She posted it on Facebook. And I started hearing from all these kids who were in my class in 1969. I mean, that's a long time ago. And them telling me what they learned from me how I made a difference in their life. And so, again, as a teacher, you know, at the end of the year, we used to be able to hug our kids goodbye and, and say goodbye, but now we just say goodbye. We don't know when they walk out the door what impact we've had. And so, I say that, you know, when we're living our best life, we are being, when we are connecting, we are imparting important messages and leaving a legacy that we can be proud of.
0: Yeah, very, very true. I, I mean, as you're talking, just thinking back to some people that had a huge impact. I mean, you know, they, they would have no idea because for them it was a very small thing in the moment. That was just how they operated. But the impact on me was tremendous because it turned out to be exactly what I needed in that moment. So yes. and, and then of course, like I say, we, we never know. <laughs> we we just. Don't know the impact.
1: Can I say something about that? Please. So so I do an exercise in class where I read about Captain Plum, who was a fighter pilot in Vietnam War, who was his plane was shot down and someone he became a POW for six years and he was in Kansas City after that. And he was at a restaurant and some man kept looking at him and looking at him and finally came up to him. And said, you're Captain Plum. And, and Captain Plum said, how do you know that? And he said, because you you flew a, pilot, a fighter pilot jet and you became a POW. And he said, how do you know? And he said, because I packed your parachute that day. And so in my class, what I do is I ask people to think about who packed their parachute, who had an impact on them. A, think about it, but also... You might want to send a note to the person, if the person's still living, let that person know. But the other piece is, I have them look at whose life have they impacted? You know, we think about, we think about who has impacted our lives, but we don't always think about whose life we've impacted. And I think that that's also a really important exercise, to be able to think both ways, you know, to, to really consider whose life have you changed?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Merle, this has been a fantastic conversation and I really, really enjoyed this. So re- remind us for those that want to dig deeper. For, well, first off, where can people find you and what is the book? Give us a book title again and, and where, okay. where they can find that.
1: Okay. So the book title is living and leaving my legacy volume one, Volume two, hopefully will be out next year. It will, it will be on Amazon and wherever you buy books And you can find me at my website, which is Merle R. Saferstein. I'll spell it. M-E-R-L-E-R-S-A-F-E-R-S-T-E-I-N.com. And all my social media connections are there as well.
0: Excellent. Well, Merle, I say, this has been fantastic. I love talking about legacy and you've had quite a life. And so I love hearing about that as as well. And so thank you for, for being on today.
1: And thank you for having me. It was really my pleasure.